Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Miss the show? No worries. We've got you covered on our podcast. On point tonight, does a she session actually exist? It does if you have an agenda to push. We talked to the father of two autistic kids and the cost pushing them out of school and online has had. A new rent relief program is going to put power back in the hands of business owners, but it actually might come way too late. And we'll talk about the loss of a guitar legend who got me through high school. Let's get talking about that. to see the, the numbers in Toronto have, have gone down again to 200 and I just you can't put people out of work tens of thousands of people destroy their lives just like bang that quickly just bang they're, they're done I can't do that I, I just can't no and the premier's right there is a cost to COVID-19 that millions are going to pay if they're shut down again and it goes far far beyond just losing a business Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, October 6th. And boy, oh boy, we had a lot of reasons to say that 2020 officially sucks lemons. But man, oh man. I mean, Neil Pert in January and now news of Eddie Van Halen. I I was really sad about this when I saw it. uh, I was talking to John Oakley, actually. He was uh, talking to me about testing and I see this blazing breaking news. I almost blurted it out, but I was very sad to see this because he's a legend, you know, he needs no explaining it. And unless... Unless you're a very young millennial, and even uh, some of those say, yeah, of course we know who that is. But um, for me, you know, 1984 was a soundtrack of grade 11. I mean, Running with the Devil was just a a rotating, never-ending, you know, while we skipped school, played euchre. I mean, I was a rocker. That's what we did. That and meatloaf. And so I was really sad to see this news. Uh, Alan Cross is going to join me uh, in the 7 o'clock hour to talk about his contribution. Not just a hair, but man, that guy could play a guitar. But, you know, 2020 is just a very, it's just a very, very, very hard year. It's just not going to quit, you know. And we got a bit of a break in the summer. But, you know, that is in the the rearview mirror. And uh, the reality of what is uh, to come is really, I think, setting in this week. And, you know, we got to exhale. It was almost like we got to put uh, COVID behind us. And then, you know, we got loosey-goosey, as the premier says. And now the reality is here. We've got the second wave. And so, you know, we're reminded of the exhaustion and the stress of the first wave, you know, how hard it was, how taxing it was, you know, all those unknowns. And we know what those unknowns are now. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to fully kind of grasp what we're up for. But here's the difference between wave one and, one two, and, and wave two. Um, no one I know has got the energy to make bread. No one. And that's because most people are worried about, you know, where their bread's going to come from. 
And these never-ending headlines of, of cases surging, and then you get the chaos of, of testing and the increased talk of shutdowns. I mean, we are being confronted with this new sense of urgency and uncertainty that we didn't get in the first wave. I mean, because in, in the spring, every day was a known. It was not known. I mean, there was a novelty of the reality. It was scary, sure. But, you know, some, you know, spent it watching Netflix and Zoom drinking with their friends, but you know, going out and banging pots of pans. I don't think that's going to happen this time because in wave two, the costs of the pandemic we could bear then are now coming into sharper focus. And that is a lot of Canadians are going to be devastated by the decisions of those in charge if they shut down, which if that happens and these restrictions go in, it's probably going to be by the end of this week, if not beginning of next week. And that is why the premier is adamant in why he's, you know, not rushing into this. There's tens of thousands of people that work for these uh, small businesses too. And I, I'm not about to see someone lose their livelihood and and just destroy, when I say destroy, destroy their lives. They, they may own a home. They may lose their home. They may lose their condo. They may lose everything they have over one decision without seeing proper evidence data-based evidence, that's all I'm asking for. You know, he's right. And unless you have been through it, uh, you just don't know. You just don't know. And I do know. I mean, I went through this as a child when my father's company was crushed in the recession of the early 80s, and it was devastating. I didn't understand a lot of it. I was too young. But it was a devastating part of life. It had a major impact on our family. It changed everything. Everything. And families are torn apart in these things and and forever change because of financial ruin. I mean, there is a cost and it will happen to a lot of people. And so, you know, people are anxious. So I was not surprised to see the new polling by uh, Maru Blue, which tells us a majority of Canadians are anxious, not, not confident in healthcare. We're not trusting the information. And people think it's going to get a lot worse before getting better. 70%, 68% believe that things are going to get worse before better. 74% say healthcare can't handle it. And then you've got 60% saying like, what are these guys telling us? What are the politicians telling us? And that is a big problem because without trust, you do not get buy-in. And in wave one, folks bought in. You know, we were team Canada. We're in this together. And then the months pass by and then you start to say, no, we're not. I mean, those in the public sector had job security. They got benefits. They had a steady paycheck. Those in the private sector, especially if you owned a business, their lives were thrown into disarray and they've been left to fend for themselves. I mean, watching millions, many of them students, enjoying a summer off collecting CERB. Businesses are still waiting for help that they were promised months ago. So no, we're not in this together. And so, you know, when, I, when a teacher complains to the media about, you know, we're June tired in October, they get blowback, whether it's fair or not, because I don't think all teachers are complaining. But when, when one does, it's heard. Because we're all tired. No one is not affected by this. You know, if you're in the private sector, I mean, maybe you lost your job, but you certainly didn't get a summer break to recharge. You didn't know where the next dollar is coming and you didn't get a PD day on Friday. Yeah, they're getting a PD day on Friday. Just found out. But, you know, I think those in the public sector should take stock and realize that, yeah, shutdowns have consequences. And those making the decisions to shut down, it has real consequences for people. People are going to get hurt. You know, those in the front lines, the health colleagues, 
they've been working around the clock. They have not complained one day, not one day since this thing arrived. And they did it a lot greater risk without proper uh, protection or even information about the virus. So I think people calling for the shutdown should kind of sit back and say, hmm, never thought about it like that. So I don't, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that most Canadians aren't trusting what they're told. None of it makes sense. I mean, how is it that you can't see your immediate family for Thanksgiving, but you can go to a bar with 99 strangers and get drunk? I mean, you can get on a plane and go to, to India and come back. No questions asked. I mean, you can go to a protest with 10,000 strangers. But the rest of us are told, you know, you've got to stay home with your immediate circle. None of that makes sense. You know, do we get tested? Don't we get tested? The very people telling us how great the medical systems are, the record-breaking testing we're doing, are the same people going out to get private testing. How's that? How is that fair? It doesn't inspire confidence in the system, and it shows that we're not in this together. You know, we're told just use good judgment. Okay, well, there is a lot to judge, and there's going to be plenty of blame to go around on what seems to be a chaotic response to the second wave. And polling may suggest that a majority do support a shutdown, but, you know, the premier is right to push back against just doing this. And health health experts have said, you know, we're just going to shut down the non-essential workers. Well, who are they to say what is essential and who is essential? I mean, anyone who has a job is essential, be it the retail clerk or the wait staff. Those jobs are essential to them and to their well-being, to their survival to our economy. So sure, call for these mass shutdowns, but there is a price to be paid and we can't be naive to it. And those who are going to pay the price will do so alone. I know it's it's great when you hear the prime minister say, don't worry, we've got your backs, but I guarantee you right now, there are millions of people in this country who are feeling very alone, whether it's struggling to balance work and kids and or the business owner who knows that the second shutdown is going to likely mean the end of, of their dream. But you know, the politicians at every level, they asked us to make these enormous sacrifices in the spring, and we did so willingly for the greater good of this country. And what we expect now in return is that those in charge deliver on their end. And the chaos we're now seeing you know, suggests they, they haven't. And that's why a majority of people in this country are very, very anxious and have lost trust. Because we know whether they deliver or not, we're going to have to sacrifice more because they weren't prepared. And that's just the reality of it. Is there really such a thing as a she session? Or is this one of those kitschy phrases that special interest groups come up with that just managed to catch on? We've talked about this on the show about women being hit hardest in this crisis and hit to the service industry is often cited as a cause. Uh, And a group called the Atkinson Foundation and I had to look it up, you know, what is it? Well, they promote social and economic justice. And they're the ones pushing this narrative that COVID-19's had a greater hit on women creating the country's first she session. And they argue that women have had a harder time getting back to work because of childcare challenges. And then you read the fine print and they say the magic bullet is universal daycare. That'll cure it, eh? So this is a she session or either a fact or a fantasy, which looks like it's pushing more of a political agenda than actually stating fact. Philip Cross is a senior fellow at McDonald Laurier Institute, but he also spent four decades at StatsCan, at Statistics Canada as a chief economic analyst. Good to have you, Philip. Thanks for having me back, although it's always painful to remember all those years at StatCan, but here we are. 
Well, you, you, you didn't forget it, obviously, because uh, no. you heard the she session. So you dug into the numbers on this thing. And this is where your training is. And so what did the story tell you when you looked at the numbers about who has actually been hit hardest? Well, it's a pretty simple calculation. It didn't take me 36 years to figure out how to do this. Um, but it's, it raises a good question why other people can't do it. I looked at how many men and women lost their jobs during the recession. At the worst of it, uh, of the lockdown in April, 1.5 million women lost their jobs and 1.5 million men lost their jobs. Mm -hmm. You look at the overall recovery through to August and exactly point half a million men have lost their jobs, half a million women have lost their jobs. So I find the, the whole idea of a C-session very much exaggerated. It might be unusual that the, the decline was equally bad amongst men and women. Men are usually hurt worse during a recession because they are more likely to work in construction and manufacturing industries that are normally hard hit by recessions. As you mentioned in your lead-in, this time losses were also very widespread in services, so they were equally spread amongst men and women. But the idea that women have suffered disproportionately in this recession is completely untrue. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, Doug Ford was just commenting on the construction industry today that he really fought to keep that industry going during uh, this shutdown. And, and had he not, there would have been half a million jobs, um, you know, possibly lost. And that may have shifted the numbers altogether. But, you know, when you look at the numbers, and I blur when I look at numbers like this, it is the recovery is fairly even. So if women are not getting back to work, then what is the reason? The reason is that whole industries have shut down. I mean, the reason that stewardesses aren't being rehired by Air Canada is not that they don't have access to daycare and they can't get out of the house. It is that air travel at Air Canada has plunged 97% and yeah. is showing no signs of recovering. In fact, you know, Air Canada, like a lot of other airlines, is going to go under soon unless somebody mm -hmm. throws them a, a life jacket. So... Uh, women are suffering from the same thing that men are in, in this recession, the complete shutdown and collapse of large segments of our economy, especially those parts of the economy that involve face-to-face -face contact with customers or clients. So that's what really is, is notable about this recession. The other thing is, I mean, if you're going to bring up my days at StackCan, I'm going to recall that when I was, I lived through the 2008-2009 great financial crisis in Stackane, and I remember when people brought up the January employment numbers for 2009, people were absolutely shocked at the idea that Canada lost 100,000 jobs. In March and April this year, we lost 3 million mm -hmm. in two months. That is what's staggering about this recession. I compared it in an op-ed I wrote for the Post to a thermonuclear device being detonated compared to it makes all other recessions look like conventional bombs. That's what's notable about this recession. Uh, parsing through statistics and finding microscopic differences between men and women completely misses the point. The point is that Millions of people out there lost their jobs and are struggling to recover. We shouldn't be focusing on any particular groups. We need to lift up the whole economy and uh, target large groups uh, for the macro economy, not microscopic little groups there. Yeah. I mean, when you when you look at the numbers and you, you cite this is that that if anything, we both genders uh, fell off a cliff severely. And then you combine the numbers and twice as many jobs were lost 
in this period of March to April than all of Canada's recessions combined since 1976. But herein lies the problem, and you just mentioned it, is that in the recovery, um, there's going to be a lot of politics played. We're going through it right now as, uh, you know, health people say, shut things down. You've got the premier saying, hold on, we can't. And, and it's not as simple as that because there are actual people behind these jobs. And it will, as Doug Ford says, it will destroy families. And until you've been there, you just don't know. But there are special interest groups. They see opportunity. The Trudeau government sees opportunity in pushing a green agenda. Uh, the problem is it, it is not for the greater good. I find it very divisive. It is the, the worst of identity politics that, that is the very cancer of politics today. Very much so. I mean, the idea of a green recovery, we don't need jobs in particular sectors. We need jobs wherever we can get them. If we can get oil and gas and natural resources jobs coming back, we need those. We need manufacturing jobs. We need services jobs. We need jobs wherever we can get them because we're still faced with uh, employment. A million people have lost their jobs compared to February. The unemployment rate is still in double digits. Mm -hmm. That's the real challenge to our economy. Uh, targeting little specific sectors here and there is is actually subtracts from our recovery. We need to encourage businesses to grow where wherever we can find a business that's willing to invest in this country, and that's increasingly difficult. Yeah, it really is, and a hidden headline, and I'm sure you saw it in the paper uh, last night came across, and it really saddens me is the Irving uh, oil refinery on the east coast has shut down. Yep. And that's hundreds of jobs, not not uh, not even a shrug today by anybody. It's not going to come back. Uh, there's an Alaskan pipeline that uh, has just been approved by by Trump, and uh, Justin Trudeau has signaled he, he doesn't uh, see it going through. I mean, these these are real jobs, real recovery, yep. and there's a very clear signal that oil and energy is not going to be where we invest in country. Yeah. And what's particularly difficult about the uh, the shutdown in Newfoundland and, and the widespread job losses in Alberta is that because those economies are suffering elsewhere, it's going to be very difficult for these workers to find jobs elsewhere. Um, so, you know, we, we have to be very careful about uh, targeting specific industries in, in regions that are already suffering to uh, to not support the recovery. But the problem, the challenge, and there are so many here, Philip, is that, you know, we are in constant election mode, certainly with a minority government. And so, you know, to appeal to the the voters, uh, the, the Trudeau government will certainly pander to their female vote. by So a she session goes completely into their talking points. That's a narrative they can buy, uh, child care and all these, you know, things that, that they can be given. That will, that will quickly buy votes. What it won't do is buy recovery. No, and what it will do also, though, it, in, when you speak about buying votes, is it's going to raise the deficit. It's yeah. not like you know we're having trouble finding things to spend on. We're in facing a, a, a record deficit, and what we can't afford is to throw away money on projects that aren't needed. Uh, there's enough Canadians out there who are suffering. Enough businesses are facing uh, more difficulties this winter. Uh, you know, that's where we should be aiming our aid. Those are people who really need help. Yeah. Uh, as I say, the idea that uh, women uh, can't return to the labor force because they can't find daycare. No, the real problem is they don't have jobs to return to. Once yeah. those jobs return, then we can start worrying about whether or not they have daycare. But until those jobs return, the, the other questions are moot. Yeah. Well, insightful and uh, always good to get the other side of the story because I thought, hmm, I wonder if this is a thing. And then you wrote about it. Philip, I always appreciate your time. Thank you. 
My pleasure. Thank you, Alex. That is Philip Cross, and you can read that article in the uh, Financial Post. It was just uh, there a couple of days ago, but there you go, the other side of the story. Good to have you here on this Tuesday. And, you know, we have been hearing a, a steady stream of angst and frustration from parents, you know, trying to get their kids online. And believe it or not, there's still a lot waiting. But then there are the parents of children who have developmental challenges, autism, or they're on the specter. And those kids, when this province shut down, their lives were literally thrown into turmoil. And the shutdown not only took away all structure and routine, it forced parents of these kids to abandon jobs and take over what teachers helped them do. But worse, a lot of these vulnerable kids are developing further anxiety, depression, and deterioration of their mental health. I mean, they're not just slipping through the cracks, they are slipping away. Jordan Glass is dad to two daughters with autism. Rachel is 12. His youngest is Lily. She's just five. He joins us now. Good to have you, Jordan. Good to be here. Thank you. Put into perspective, if you can, what it has been like over the last, you know, six months while, you know, we've kind of been shut down on this thing. Uh, so so it's been a challenge. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to, um, I don't want to pretend, paint a picture that, that it's not a challenge for all parents because certainly it is. Um, but for those of us with kids with special needs, um, and, and in my case, uh, my, both my girls are autistic. Um, uh, we've, we've had to face challenges that I think, um, I, I think not everyone's aware of. Um, and in the case of, of my, of my youngest, um, we're, we're talking about a child who, who, who had just begun her, her school journey uh, when, when, the bricks and mortar schools were shut down last yeah. March or this Mar- this past March, I should say, and uh, and we're talking about a, a, a child who who is is nonverbal or 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 minimally verbal um, and uh, experiencing those first aspects in her in her kindergarten class of, of socialization right. with kids her age really for the first time in her life um, ha- have been taken away from her um, based on. Uh, Based on the decisions that have been made, um, and and in in doing that, we've we've even begun to see some uh, some regression of uh, regression. I should I should make sure that's said right. Um, regression of um, some of the skills she was developing in that setting. Right. I mean, even before this pandemic hit, I mean, autism's been yeah. two decades long in conversation. I mean, back to the Dalton McGinty days, the parents like you were feeling very very abandoned by the province. So it was already an issue of the lack of support for kids who are on the spectrum or, or dealing with developmental challenges. And so here you are, just one of a number of parents in this province, now kind of abandoned by the system because it, it can barely keep up day to day. And so it's up to you now to kind of, and, and parents like yourselves, to burden um, all of this on your own. And it was hard enough before. I, I have to think it's impossible now. It's it's certainly a it's certainly a challenge. Um, you know, we you, you mentioned decades, and 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 I don't want to speak for the entire community, but um, but it, but it does feel like multiple governments of multiple partisan stripe have, have let us down. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and we've uh, we've had to sort of do things on our own in a way that I I don't think we were we were hoping for a kind of support, um, and we. And every time it looks like a, someone, like one of those governments, are going to give us that support, it seems to get taken out from under us, um, and and it certainly uh, creates challenges. Um, 
you know, even with uh, the way the OAP has had to be restructured in this time, has uh, has had to have us constantly acting and reacting to unforeseen circumstances. Yeah, I mean, we just don't know day to day uh, for regular classes what's going on. Uh, the online is a disaster, period. Um, and, and so then you've got this category of parents dealing with children who, who just are, are desperate for some kind of support, some kind of consistency, some kind of stability, and it just does yeah. not ever seem to exist. And so it has to be not just frustrating, but as a parent, just heartbreaking for you. Because the one thing I've learned over the years in speaking to parents uh, with children who have autism is that, you know, without the continuity, without the structure, without the supports, if that goes away, essentially they go away. They, they can retreat and go back into themselves and, and slip away. Is that what you're seeing? So I don't know if that entirely describes my daughter, um, that phrasing of, of slipping away into herself. Um, but I have noticed uh, skills that she was developing in that socialization, things like um, saying letters, Yeah. Um, which, um, you know, and I don't want to, I want to, I want, I want to make I, I want to say that, you know, it's, I'm careful not to phrase that it's, that it's our challenge as parents. It's a challenge as parents to see our children struggle. Mm -hmm. um, it's their struggle. And that's our challenge. It's, you know, it's, it's, we see that like with Lily, she was starting to say letters uh, of the alphabet, you know, just getting A, B, C, D. Um, and and without access to proper things like speech therapy that she was right. experiencing up until March or or being in that classroom with other kids her age that perhaps had more uh, more verbiage, um, we've seen that go away. Right. Um, and while we try to work on, on things with her as parents, my wife and I, um, it's not an area of expertise for us, other, right. like our own daughter is. Uh, our our area of expertise, um, but but we don't have the, the training to be uh, to be SLP therapists or to be ABA therapists or to be classroom teachers. That's or or that's just not an area of our expertise, um, and we can only do the best we can, which is is hardly uh, a perfect uh, an ideal, yeah. <laughs> far I from mean, ideal situation. Yeah, parents have really struggled to, to do the balance of work and then be there online to get the education in. And so, you know, when yeah. you talk to people like yourselves, I mean, it goes so much further because there are so many more needs that aren't being met. What kind of supports do you have? Is, is it all online? I mean, are you getting anything and do you see any hope in the next, you know, immediate future? Um, you know, it's a struggle um, because... Um, because we're dealing with things like uh, like growing social anxiety uh, amongst both our girls, um, and we're dealing, and so those 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 therapies and and uh, and assistance that we used to be able to take our kids to yeah. um, just don't don't perhaps exist anymore. Um, so it's uh, it, it can be it can be difficult. Um, you know, uh, we used to take uh, our youngest to to in-person therapy, and and she hasn't had that since March. Uh, it just hasn't been there to take her to, um, and uh, and that's, I mean, that's really what gets in the way of this uh, personal growth. That I think, and and I don't mean to, I don't mean to speak ill of of parents of neurotypical children, but I think that some parents take advantage, not advantage of, take for granted. Yeah. Yeah, no, we know that there's going to be a cost to this young, young generation. You know, I have a seven-year-old and I know 
just from the lack of socialization in the spring, how detrimental it was to his growth. And so I, I look to parents like you and I think, my God, what is it going to do to this generation of children that were so lacking in support before? And now it's ultimately gone. And so, Jordan, I mean, I know you're not alone in this community. What has the province uh, been able to do for you? And what, you know, what what is like the next six months look like for you and your your, your family? Uh, I, I would love to say that the province has risen to the occasion. I would. Um, and and I don't want to make it seem like this is the first government to, to fail us um, uh, because they're not. Um, they're just the government that's doing it now uh, from from where I sit. Um, you know, it's um, nothing was really pl- nothing has really been planned out for for school aged children uh, with 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 these needs. Yeah. Um, it, it, virtual learning just doesn't it doesn't work for my kids mm-hmm. um, in the same way it might work for other kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they need that aspect of socialization and to put and to. And I don't want to sound like I'm criticizing uh, parents who do use virtual learning that, and it works for them because it because it because that's it them. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, if it works for them, that's that's up to them, right? Uh, I don't want to criticize any other parents, but for us, for us, it's just you sit a kid in front of a computer, and they're not, you know. I mean, my oldest daughter literally required, you know, hand holding during it. Um, my my youngest daughter. Um, really sat through five minutes at a time and then we'd have to yeah. go back to it and maybe that was it um her attention span just isn't there to sit for hours a day um, what would you jordan if you could what would you say uh, if you could you know send a message to doug for care to these radio stations <laughs> what would you tell him what's the message I, I don't know doug ford personally and i don't want to i don't want to but but the the appearance of of what I hear from him, what I see from him, I wish I wish I felt like I wish he cared more. Um, and I know I've heard people say he does, but th- that's not the impression that I think a lot of people. When I talk to other people in this community, this this community of uh, of whether it be autism or or or, or other special needs, um, the 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 feeling isn't that this government cares. Um, and I and I certainly. I know no government wants that appearance, um, but I, but that's the feeling that we get. That this government, you know, they from day one they felt like they could throw a little bit of money at us and we'd be happy with it. Um, but it takes, but but there's more to it than that. Well, I know the premier listens, and I do know that he cares. And so let's see if we can maybe get the conversation started and, and make people realize that there's a whole community out there feeling very very much abandoned in uh, in the strangest and hardest of times. Jordan, I appreciate you giving me your time and uh, we'll talk again. Thank you. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Uh, if, I, if I may, I, I just want to touch on one thing. Uh, if there's just a moment left. Yeah, I'm up against the clock, but what would you like to say? I understand. Um, I, uh, I just want to, I, I just, I just want to express that, um, that anything the government can do would be so helpful. And when we talk about the constant changes, for parents in in the in the structure of the OAP, it's it's such a letdown. Yeah. We we as parents, just like our kids, we need that structure to know what's going to happen for them in the next six months. And it would be so helpful if we could just plan ahead a little. It's such a small thing, but in the big picture for these kids, it is everything. And so, yeah, 
it's a, it's an ask and it is in and we will follow up. Jordan, I thank you for your thank time you so and we will for sure talk again. Thank you. I hope so. Thank you. Be well. Jordan Glass, and he is one of many, many, many parents who have literally just kind of fallen under the radar, but more importantly, his kids have fallen under the radar as we all deal uh, you know, with the new norms. So we will follow up with this. I'm not ready to go willy-nilly and just make a, a decision and ruin tens of thousands of people's lives and shut down absolutely everything that the NDP want to do. You're right. You're 100% right. There's one thing, you're right, leader of the opposition, is I will exhaust every avenue that I possibly can to be able to put food on people's tables, be able to pay the rent, pay their mortgage, take care of their kids while we go through this crisis. We're there to support them. Let's Doug forward in a question period this morning, and there's a bit of a standoff happening now between uh, politicians, both at the provincial and uh, city of Toronto level, uh, and the Ford government over these demands to shut down parts of the economy. Um, Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca demanding a 28-day shutdown to get the cases under control. And that doesn't sound like much, but if you're a small business, it certainly does, because you're barely hanging off on right now, and a month more of lost business could be the last nail in the coffin especially when they've been waiting months for aid. Months. It still hasn't arrived for most of them. And Toronto Mayor John Tory hinted that a new rent relief program is on its way. And this one, if it happens, would let business owners directly apply for relief instead of being dependent on their landlords. But I think for a lot of these businesses, it's just too little too late. Lord Jones is Executive Vice President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. You guys have been I don't think there's any group that's lobbied harder for small businesses uh, than your group, Laura. But, um, you know, when you hear of all the talk of shutdown and, and, you know, there's the health side of it, but the business side of it, um, you know, and and probably coming in the next couple of days, what, what is that for a business? Well, the fear of a second wave of, of shutdowns is, is one of the top concerns for small businesses right now because many of them are saying their business just won't survive a second mm-hmm. shutdown. I mean, the first one was, was rough enough, and we know that there were business failures over the first shutdown. Uh, but to uh, ask businesses to go through that again, um, that's, um, you're going to see a lot more business failure. And that has its own implications because those businesses employ people um, who then may lose their jobs. And mm-hmm. so it's, you know, it, 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 it's pretty serious um, to talk about, you know, a second, uh, second round of, of blanket shutdowns. 28 days doesn't sound much to, to most people, unless, of course, you own a business. But what are you hearing from your members? No, oh, 28 days is, is he, I mean, that's a month. I, you know, that, that would be devastating for a lot of businesses. I'm um, actually in Toronto today and we were um, just having, having, I just, you know, got, got our lunch from the food court and talked to a business owner there. He typically had about 250 customers a day during COVID. He's uh, been down to about 20 a day and um, this fear of a second wave and, and shutdowns has his customers uh, staying home, he's now down to about ten customers a day. You can't you can't make it very long um, on those numbers. The math just doesn't no. add up. 
You know, in, in the first wave, you know, it, uh, the government was quick to come out and just kind of shower money on everybody. I mean, the CERB went out, no problems, no questions asked. And, you know, in hindsight, it's 2020. But a lot of the other programs just did not work for businesses. There were just too many loopholes, too many qualifications that they didn't qualify for. But the big one was the rent relief because they put the power in the hands of the landlord. And the landlord said, we're not signing up for this. We don't want to take this risk and we're not going to pay the cost. And so a lot of these businesses have waited six or seven months for, for help that hasn't come and they're still waiting and they're hearing of shutdowns and then there might be this new package that John Tory talked about. I mean, how long is that going to take? Well, hopefully, if there's a new rent relief package, it will be coming soon. Um, common sense would dictate that. And there's all kinds of rumors and speculation, including uh, speculation um, from, from John Tory about um, what might be coming. So I think we're hopeful that we'll hear something soon. The old rent relief program expired, of course, at the end of September, and there's been nothing to replace it. We're past the first of the month. So, you know, we're, we're fingers crossed that we'll get something very very soon, but a lot of business owners are really stressed out because, you know, they're hopeful, but you can't take hope to the bank. Right. Yeah. And, and the banks have been forgiving to a point, but they're still banks at the end of the day and they will collect. I mean, for a lot of these businesses, I have to think that any relief they get now at this point is, is just going to buy them a bit more time. Well, you know, for some businesses, it will make the difference between being able to bridge back to recovery. There's no doubt that businesses, um, most businesses have taken on debt in order to deal yeah. with the COVID-19 uh, crisis. So, you know, this will help them uh, maybe provide a little bit of, of relief on that on that side. But it's going to be tough. It's going to be really tough to, to get back for many of them. Um, and so everything we can do now to bridge as many businesses back to recovery as possible um, is going to benefit uh, Canada's economic recovery because small business is not a small part of the economy. Small business is mm -hmm. a big deal when it comes to their economic contribution. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we've turned them into a talking point. Small businesses are now referred to as non-essential workers by the health officials and that. And I think to myself, well, who the hell are they to call someone non-essential? I mean, anybody who has a job is essential. It's, you know, and that job is essential to them. But we have reduced people in small business and those who work for small business um, to just these non-essential workers, kind of a category that doesn't really exist as a human. Yeah, I, you know, the business owners themselves, their employees, the families of the business owners and the employees, these are all these are all people um, who are relying on those businesses for their livelihoods. So and, you know, when you shut that down, that has big consequences uh, for the whole economy in terms of, you know, employment and then in terms of health implications, including mental health uh, implications for people. So um, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, a, it's, a very, it's very serious. And I think, you know, more targeted shutdowns where that makes sense is one thing, but blanket shutdowns, you know, that's, um, we've, we've learned a lot about COVID. I think there's a lot we can do um, relatively uh, safely. And, you know, we need to, we need to start balancing out their risk, risk trade-offs here. There's certainly yeah. risks when you start, you know, unemploying um, large numbers of Canadians. Yeah. And, and the first wave was, I don't want to say forgiving because it was, it, there was a cost already, but the second wave, I think for many is, is, um, is going to be much more severe and final. 
absolutely. You're just not, businesses are not going into the second wave with the same resources they had right. in the first wave. And of course, with, um, you know, many still waiting for rent relief, or mm-hmm. there's still for some businesses, the Canada Emergency Business Account for those who um, have personal bank accounts, that's long overdue. Um, and, you know, so they're waiting for these supports that they desperately need and uh, can't come soon enough. Um and um, and it's important. It's important to Canada's recovery. We can't emphasize that enough, really. Yeah, and uh, yet you guys do. Uh, you've been terrific uh, support for small businesses. And uh, with, uh, without uh, your organization's voice, I, f- I fear where small business would be at uh, now, which is not great, but at least they've had you guys on site. Laura, appreciate it, and we'll uh, continue chatting. Thanks so much. That is Laura Jones with uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. So I'm sure they're keeping busy these days. And they're the ones answering the phones to the members who are probably uh, sharing a lot of very, very stressed out, uh, very sad stories right now. step on this that is very 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 bad but that is eruption i mean it is rated one of the greatest solos of all time i mean just listen to it it's kind of mind-blowing but when you uh type in greatest guitar players of all time eddie van halen is on every uh list he was absolutely revolutionary um you know this is a guy who took his band van halen through five decades of of chart stopping music i mean without question he was a master um and it's interesting because he couldn't even read music and yet he could create it like a solo like that just effortlessly. And in a time when, uh, you know, back in the 70s and 80s and hair and speed and noise were dominating, he said, you know, I just want to play my guitar. I want to make people feel sometimes happy, sad, even horny. Um, and he's a guy who survived three lead singers, but ultimately it was throat cancer that he could not survive. So I was very, very sad to hear that at 65 he has lost his life. Alan Cross, of course, radio host on 102.1, The Edge, host of the podcast, The Ongoing History of New Music, joining me now. And he was the Mozart of rock. I knew he was sick, but man, so sad to hear he's gone. Yeah, he's been sick for, for quite some time. He was diagnosed with cancer about 10 years ago. And before that, he had yeah. terrible hip, hip problems. Um, this is something that's an occupational hazard of a professional guitar player when you're running around on stage with this weight hanger hung around your neck. So he had a couple of hips and hip replacements. Um, but the cancer was the thing that got him. Um, it could have been heavy smoking because you never saw Eddie without mm-hmm. a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. Or, and this is his, this was his yeah. um, uh, theory, is that he used to sort of store his guitar pick, his metal guitar pick, in his mouth, and mm-hmm. he would just, you know, go back and get it whenever he needed it when he was playing. And he uh, he thinks that maybe some of the metals leached out of that guitar pick into his tissue and caused the malignancy. He actually had one third of his tongue removed um, a number of years ago because of, of cancer, and then uh, it spread to his throat. He was going back and forth to Germany for various treatments for about five years. Um, he was on a lot of chemotherapy, 
But every time we heard that he was on death's door, he would pop up someplace at a concert, a car dealership, a restaurant, someplace, and he would look fine. So it was like, oh, okay, fine. We were, he, he's going to be okay. But then today we, we hear that uh, after, after the chemo, after the treatments, after everything else, he just gave out. Yeah, and and the tributes rolling in. I mean, you know, you're you're a legend when guys like uh, Ozzy Osbourne, Gene Simmons, Flea, uh, Robert Rodriguez, they're, they're all speaking out. And of course, his uh, ex-wife Valerie Bertinelli. Um, I mean, he he had such a career, and he didn't even start out playing the guitar. He actually played the drums, and then he got so frustrated that he swapped with his brother Alex and went to the guitar. <laughs> he was so frustrated that there was a song that he couldn't master. He couldn't master. Uh, I think it was Wipeout, and so he just said, "Forget it. I'm going to go play the guitar." Yeah, it was actually a really good idea, good idea because he became this guitar god, and Alex yeah. became this this fantastic uh, drummer. And the two of them, together with David Lee Roth and bass player Michael Anthony, uh, turned into this this unbelievable heavy hard rock band from the 1970s. It took them a while to break out. Everybody knew who they were in Los Angeles for a number of years after Gene Simmons of Kiss had kind of discovered them. But then mm-hmm. uh, they re-recorded their demo, and, and after 1978, that debut album, they were unstoppable. Yeah, and they weren't an overnight success. I mean, it took them a good long time. I mean, he was classically trained and uh, worked for every uh, bit of it. But, you know, he survived three lead singers. They had uh, David Lee Roth, of course, Sammy Hagar, <laughs> and Gary Sharon. Um, and everyone thinks that once the lead singer's gone, a band will fall apart. And yet he, he was the band. He and his brother were the band. So, I mean, they still had so much success. Right. Let's let's just leave Gary Sharon out of the equation because that, yeah. <laughs> that he did have a good voice, but he wasn't. Really, yeah. But he, you know, Eddie's guitar was the glue that held the band through all of David Lee Roth's antics, and yeah. through the uh, the subsequent transition to Sammy Hagar after David Lee Roth either quit or was kicked out or whatever. So it's very very hard for a band to maintain the momentum that they've had when they change lead singers, especially if the two lead singers are very different in their attitude and performance style. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Eddie was there. The guitar the, the guitar was the thing that held Van Halen together through all those decades. Yeah, and interestingly, David Lee Roth, I mean, their fallout really came when uh, Valerie Bertinelli, the, Bert, Bertinelli came into the picture because Roth was, he wanted to be known as the rocker, like the single party partier guy is getting all the girls, and then she comes into the picture, and that's kind of when they started fighting, and then he left and Sammy Hager would come in, but... What a career. I mean, he was most frustrated when he got idolized by kids when he screwed up. He knew he was screwing up, and then the kids would come up after him and say, oh, my God, I love you. And he was like, that was so frustrating to him because he knew he screwed up. <laughs> yeah, he had some really interesting guitar tones, guitar sounds, and guitar stylings. He um, had this, what he called the Frankenstein guitar. That's the famous yeah. red one with the stripes all over it. That guitar was disassembled and reassembled countless times as he tinkered with it. And if you ever saw the thing up close, and I have, the, it, it's, it looks like it's about to fall apart. But in his hands, when he was playing on stage, I mean, it, it, was, it, it, it was just uh, uh, amazing. You know, it was not only the sounds that he got out of his guitar, but the sounds that he got out of his fingers. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was growing up, he didn't have any money for fancy amps or outboard effects or anything like that. So the only thing that he could do was ring as much sound and as much emotion out of his guitar with his fingers and he used this this tapping technique that he learned from jimmy page mm-hmm. and uh another thing called hammering on which which sort of added this percussive element to the way he would solo and it, it, it you know i remember hearing him play for the very first time i, I remember exactly where i was 
And uh, I remember thinking, who, who is this? <laughs> who is this guy? I mean, it, this is this is more than Jimmy Page. This is more than yeah. Eric Clapton. This is this is way different than than Jimi Hendrix. Who is he? There was this young kid from from uh, uh, from Los Angeles yeah. who was was able to do these things with the guitar that nobody had ever done up until that point. Well, we've lost a couple of greats. I mean, Neil Peart in uh, January, and now Eddie Van Halen. So it's been a yeah, tough just, year for yeah. legends. Yeah. Just when you think 2020 couldn't suck anymore. Uh, it does suck supremely. Appreciate it, Alan, always. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Alan Cross joining us. And uh, yeah, you look, his kid put out, uh, Wolfgang put out a statement saying he was the best father I could ask for. Every moment I've shared with him on and off stage was a gift. My heart's broken. And I don't think I'll ever fully recover from this loss. And you don't, because at the end of the day, he was dad. Real sad loss. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can catch us live Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10 on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.